Well, you survived a full day, I see, with minimal injuries, I hope. And each night I'm going to be here talking about a lot of different things that we need to deal with because there's a lot of things going on in our culture and in our world, and they all relate, as I warned you last night, to answering the question, um, who are you and how'd you get here? Everything we're going to deal with this week has to do with the image of God, the Imago Dei, the fact that you are, as we said last night, one who bears the image of God. In fact, that word image is the Hebrew word that is translated elsewhere, idol. We're not supposed to make idols of God, representations of God, because we are the rep- representation of God. We are the reflection of God and his character and his nature. You can't turn a stone into something that represents God or a piece of wood into something that represents God. You are walking around representing God and reflecting his attributes as imperfectly as we do. We said that you are a special creation of God, that he created human beings instantaneously with the word of his power, and that he put our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents here a long, long time ago and put them in a garden, gave them an opportunity to make a decision of loyalty to him, and they chose to rebel. That started a lot of trouble. But it didn't change the fact that we are a special creation of God, and though the image of God is damaged in us, and there's a lot of repair that needs to happen, and one day for us as Christians, we'll have it fully repaired in a place where everything is good. We know that we bear the image of God because God said it. He was there when he created us, and he's revealed that to us in his word. What's revealed in your science textbooks, though, is something different. You have a tree that says you've made it to the top. You become this uh, vertebrate, this mammal, and uh, you're grouped oftentimes in little pictures like this as they try to abbreviate the fact that you came from these singular-celled amoebas all the way to who you are today sitting here with all the complexities. But I think it's helpful for us to think through what they are saying as it relates to every stage of this. We talked about this last night, I wrongly referenced 400 million years ago. We're talking about 4 billion years ago when they believed that life somehow sprang into existence. These are all arbitrary, imaginary numbers, of course. It's all speculative. This is speculation. And perhaps, again, as the smartest guy in the world would say, maybe a Martian seeded life on the planet, you became a pretty complex piece of life, you strung into strings of life, you got really complicated in terms of the cellular level of life, then you look like a, uh, I don't know, a heating pad here for a little while, became a flat worm, a swimming worm, looked more like a fish, a snake, became a fish with a big head, fish that you might want to catch and eat for dinner, some bottom feeders, you grew some legs, you kind of started crawling around looking more like an alligator, getting in and out of the water, looked like a lizard. Then you got really ugly about 256 million years ago. Uh, Then you started getting longer legs and sitting upright. Your tail got longer. You looked like a naked mole rat. Then you just looked like a rat. Then you got uh, longer legs still. Uh, You had another bad stage there about 65 million years ago. You started eating bananas and looking a little better, like a monkey that we think is cute. And then you got uh, stronger and you grew... uh, climbed trees, you started sitting up a little bit more, looking like an orangutan, started getting more complex in your thinking, your brain got a little bit more complicated, and uh, you started playing catcher on the baseball team, and uh, you sat around in trees and in the forest, and then you started standing upright, Uh, you started being more uh, 
deft at walking around, and uh, then you started being a hunter and a gatherer. You started to thin out your hair, and uh, then you lost all your hair, and at some point you started putting on clothing. But all of this, I think, is helpful, even these last stages in the millions of years that they tell us uh, that there is this continuation of a relationship between what we once were as human beings uh, to what we are now. As a matter of fact, some of the evolutionary textbooks, I just picked one cover uh, of a textbook, second edition of this uh, Lewin and Holy book, um, or Foley rather is his name. And you can see if you take a little closer look at this, uh, you know, kind of what we're up against when we think about how we got here. And this, of course, are snapshots of apparently how we got here in these last stages. Uh, of course, uh, this guy made this theory really popular, Charles Darwin. He wrote a book you're familiar with. They probably won't recommend you read it at this particular point because you'd be disturbed by what you read in it because that's not what they're telling us now. But at least he popularized the idea of this progression of coming from uh, you know, the, the rat stage after the, the snake stage after the lizard stage to get to the place. And I'm using all modern terms, of course, for what they all have very fancy Latin names for to become ape man and homo erectus, and then you become a human being that puts clothes on, walks around, and builds hospitals. Um, you're familiar with Origins of Species. You probably even know the subtitle. By means of natural selection, those terms are still used. Uh, what's not used very often, although this was essential to the theory and is inescapable in theory, is the sub-subtitle, which is the alternate title for the book, which is called The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. Of course, in the struggle for life, the domination of the evolved man had to put down and survive and often kill off other threatening parts of this evolutionary chain so that we could get to where we are now. These were common late 19th century, early 20th century charts that showed how people evolved in these last stages from monkey to what was still a vestige set of races around the world until we got, as you see here, through uh, blacks, Africans, Indians, Native Americans, Asians, and then you became you know, a, a, a tie-wearing white uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, Englishman who can sit around and talk about the fact that the favored races have prevailed, the favored race in particular had prevailed. Now, all of this sequence of life, as is posited to you and taught to you in schools and in textbooks and by the culture and the National Geographic's channel and Science Channel and all the rest, they're going to tell you this, but they don't want you to think about it too long because it's a bit of a problem when you start to apply it to life and think of ourselves in these terms. Because they are going to tell you, and by implication necessarily tell you, that there is a life that is out there that is less than human. You say, well, of course there is. You said that last night. Animals are not human. I, I understand that. I get that. But the progression within this natural selection and the meeting out of all that we have in the present age certainly shows, even around us today, races that are favored over others. And while they seek hard to not even speak of these things, uh, there is a a clear implication when this theory first started to be discussed in universities that, of course, this is the case. Uh, Labens earn Wertes Leben. There's some uh, German for you right there. It was a familiar phrase. It's hard to say. Uh, Labens earn Wertes Leben is a phrase that's translated, there is a life that is unworthy of life. As a matter of fact, if we're going to get to this last stage of evolution, this pinnacle of evolution, we should understand there are forms of life. There are favored races and unfavored races that need to be distinguished. 
And of course, who's best known for popularizing this phrase among his doctors and professors was the Third Reich in Germany, Hitler, who said, we know that these Aryan white European races in particular, his in particular, the whitest of Aryan races, is the favored race. And certainly there would be no, no con confusion or debate in Darwin or among his colleagues. Of course, that's the case. And so he sought very carefully to say, okay, we are the pinnacle of evolution and we ought to make it clear, and, and, and we ought to do all that we can to establish this, just like the rest of the races had to work through this last period of evolution for dominance, the struggle and the survival of the fittest to be able to place onto the planet uh, those that are most refined in their evolutionary process. And that's why he worked so hard to look all around the world and say, and the Germans and all the scholars and everyone in, in the community stood up and hailed him. I mean, he was a, uh, a runaway leader in, in uh, Germany and many other places were you know, bowing to not only his, uh, his strong fist and his military might, uh, but also his philosophy, which grew out of a secularistic, uh, progressive, evolutionary mindset. And of course, the Jews were at the pinnacle of his hit list, his hate list, because they were, as this says here in German, they are the bastards of all of these other lesser unfavored races. And so they spent time in Germany working hard to work out the, the natural, logical conclusion of the evolutionary theory to say, we need to now look at people all around us and put them in categories. And they did that. And it wasn't just people in Africa or the Aborigines in Australia or people in, in, in the Native Americans. Uh, it was even the surrounding European nations. They recognized that they were at the top of the evolutionary heap. So they taught people how to recognize even some of the European, uh, what we would call ethnic distinctions that they saw as other races. They would go around seeing if you had life that was worthy of life just based on your characteristics, like how broad your nose might be. And that was taught. It was taught in schools. It was what everyone believed because it is a natural, logical extension of the evolutionary theory. If you look at the cover in an evolutionary textbook, you still are, are you're hard pressed not to see that just as a logical thing. Well, of course, if we are, if this is the process as it's been taught, uh, then we are all uh, seeking to be that, uh, that, that pinnacle of the uh, evolutionary chain. Well, of course, if you know a little bit about history, uh, mid-20th uh, mid century history, you know that Nazi Germany and all that went on in our country getting pulled into the war um, decisively, and thanks to men like Winston Churchill and uh, the American fortitude during World War II, we were able to put down the uh, Nazi regime and win World War II. But not until six uh, million Jews were exterminated uh, in Germany in 11 years, 1933 to 1945. So this was a time, uh, they call it the Holocaust, of course, and uh, there's no denying this. He not only killed Jews, he killed all kinds of people, even Europeans, and uh, he, he killed, um, of course, Jews were at the top of his list, but all kinds of ethnic uh, diverse people that he saw as not the favored races. Well, I'm glad there's no more uh, Nazi Germany mindset going on where people are saying, here's life that's unworthy of life. Uh, that's a good thing. And uh, over here in America, we're doing just fine. And we uh, have no, uh, no one saying that there's life that's better than other life and life that's unworthy of life, except there is. Uh, and maybe I put too strong of a symbol up here. This symbol on your right, Nazi Germany, uh, that's one that you would 
not want to see anywhere on your, uh, you know, your notebooks. Uh, this one, though, is passed out by the principal's office to let you know uh, where you can go and get your reproductive health uh, dealt with, as they put it so kindly. I'll put it in pink because that's how they like it now. They like to soften uh, their symbol of life unworthy of life uh, in pink. Of course, that logo is, stands for Planned Parenthood. And of course, they are all about acting in this world, acting no matter what, as they say, as that slogan says. Uh, and, and they've changed it even since knowing how aggressive and militant that is. And I think the latest iteration of that is caring uh, no matter what. Well, they care. They care about the fact that there ought to be a distinction between life that is worthy of life and life that is not worthy of life. Because to them, even in a society like ours, there's a certain pecking order and there's something about uh, the chain of, of supremacy in life that they want to make a distinguishing uh, line of demarcation. They want to be able to say, this is life that is worthy of living and this is life that is not. Uh, by the way, this is not uh, any news to you. Uh, that I would think, I would hope, that you know, everyone puts museums together for the six million Jews that were exterminated in Germany. Uh, we've just had, in the past eight years, 6.6 .6 million babies that have been exterminated because in our country, it's fine for us to say those babies are not anything but a mass of, of cells, a clump of cells. And since Roe v. Wade, which you're familiar with, the Supreme Court case that uh, legalized, uh, in essence, legalized um, abortion, uh, we've had about 62 million, right? 10 times as many Jews as were killed in the Holocaust, 62 million babies just in our country alone that have been uh, aborted, torn to pieces limb by limb in a mother's body. Life that is less than human. As a matter of fact, they would claim that it is life unworthy of life. And you need to know the ugly background to all of this. There's a word that comes from the Greek language called eugenics, which is the whole reason that uh, Nazi Germany went about what it did, and it's the whole reason Planned Parenthood exists. It's the whole reason people are pro-abortion. That's why we have, as some would say, a culture of death in the United States of America. Here's a poster. Actually, this was a cover of a magazine uh, that was put out by the Third Reich, and uh, it is the from the Office of Race Politics, by the way, just so you know. And part of the race politics was not only what skin color you had or how thick your nose was, uh, but also how healthy you are, how smart you are, how you can contribute to society. Um, 60,000 Reichmarks, if I can translate this here for you, is what this person here, and you can see he uh, is paralyzed, looks like from the knees down. It's what this person suffering from hereditary defects costs the community in his lifetime costs you, you fellow citizens. That's your money too, it reads. And the big words there at the bottom left in, in uh, German, that simply translates uh, new people, a new people. This is what they wanted, a new people, right? They wanted to be able to have a pure race, a eugenic race, a eugenic. You is a Greek partic uh, particle, it means uh, good. And uh, genics has to do with your genetics or what kind of, of personal makeup you have. Uh, it certainly includes your race, it includes your intelligence, it includes what kind of productivity you might be able to have, your beauty, your speed, your, uh, your independence, your contribution to society. This is the monthly magazine from the uh, Third Reich. Of course, we have that on the right, and we have Planned Parenthood on the left because they're doing the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, unabashedly, when they began Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, who was the leader of it all, was a part of the American Eugenic Society. In other words, we want pure human beings, improving the genetic composition. This was their stated goal. 
of humans through controlled reproduction of different races and classes of people. So what we want is we want to reproduce those who are intelligent, smart, beautiful, can contribute healthy bodies and, and smart minds to society. And of course, they need to be, as the Mormons would put it, fair and delightsome. We want light-skinned Aryan people. That is the pinnacle of the evolutionary chain, and we need more of that, and we need less of anything else. So we need to get rid of those that are handicapped. We need to get rid of those who are black, who are Hispanic or Asian. We need to wipe them away. As a matter of fact, as Margaret Sanger is depicted here in this cartoon or this drawing, it's about quality, not quantity. We don't need more people on the planet. right? What we need is quality people on the planet. And just like we saw with the environmentalists that it seemed completely out of their minds to say, I'd rather kill a human than a snake, we need to understand that in our day, we're still choosing to pick quality people over the quantity of people, which means we're willing to kill over 60 million people uh, because we don't want them for many reasons. Quality, not quantity, sounds a lot like the Third Reich and about a lot like Nazism. But Margaret Sanger, the founder of uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, was the one who took that same thinking that came out of Darwinism and the evolutionary theory and said, we need this new race. We need the pinnacle of the chain of evolution to dominate the planet. And so she did start Planned Parenthood. Uh, it was a reproductive health organization. They changed the name as it went along. But she said very clearly, birth control right, is not contraception indiscriminately and thoughtlessly practiced. It's not like just we're just trying to make sure that you don't have a baby at the wrong time because I was saving for a house. And so, you know, we need to somehow engage with contraception and, and the development of the pill would come along and abortion that would become the hallmark of Planned Parenthood. We don't want to just do this indiscriminately. No, it means the release and, and cultivation of better racial elements in our society. We need whiter people we need people that look like us because we're at the top of the evolutionary chain. We need the gradual suppression and the elimination and the, and the eventual uh, extirpation. That's a word that means to root it out completely, absolutely leave it and utterly gone from society of defective stocks of the kinds of people that are not the favored races in our country. And of course, it was white people that should be the favored race. Um, so that was the point. These are human weeds, people that don't look like us, people that aren't healthy, people that aren't smart. Uh, they are human weeds, and they threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Next time you see an evolutionary tree, I want you to think about that, because at the top of the tree, in the minds of the naturalists who do not believe in God and do not assert God's direct creation of people made in their image, say at the top of this heap is white human beings in Western Aryan, European culture, and everything else in society is weeds. All the rest of that can go, particularly among the, the, the uh, human vertebrates at the top of this chain, because there's only so much to go around. There's only so many things that we can uh, eat. There's only so much oil in the ground. There's only so much room on the planet. That's how they thought, so we need to weed out all of this. And they spent a lot of time early on, in particular, saying we need to get rid of black people. Of course, they called them Negroes back then. The Birth Control Review, which was the uh, magazine, the periodical that Margaret Sanger and her team put out, often spoke of these issues about dealing with putting people in black communities, low-income communities, and to have them control their birth, make sure that they don't have any children. We need to slowly, gradually weed them out. Uh, she was in favor of uh, reading tests 
to see if you should reproduce. She was in favor of IQ tests to see if you were smart enough and could reproduce. Because what we want is to fix society so that human flourishing, in her mind, which meant white people not being encumbered by people of other races. She started and was a part of something called the Negro Project, which you can read about, which was all about making sure that we weed out uh, blacks in our society and can see white people uh, reign supremely in our country. And I know they don't like these. Matter of fact, they'll take them off the internet, off Facebook, all of that. But Margaret Sanger spent time giving speeches even to the Ku Klux Klan to make it very clear that there is quality that we should be concerned about and not quantity. That was what her interest was. I'm saying, well, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. Well, it sure does. The whole point of Planned Parenthood is not just convenience, right? Making sure that you don't have a baby at the wrong time. It's about making sure we don't have people that are less than in her mind. She wanted the eradication of the weeds of society. And certainly anyone who had a defect, anyone who had a handicap, they were the weeds of society. Down syndrome, for instance, just to quote this article, which is one of many that give these stats, but according to the most recent data available in the United States, has an estimated termination rate, right? Abortion rate for Down syndrome of 67%. And those are old stats. They're higher than that now. In France, it's 77%. Uh, those are 2015 stats. In Denmark, it's 98%. In Iceland, okay, where they are cheering them in the news here in the last two years that they've almost completely eradicated Down syndrome in that country uh, because you can't, they, they, they don't want abortions after 16 weeks, but if you have any kind of, of uh, fetal deformity, as they call it, uh, including Down syndrome, well, then you can abort the child. This is an article from CBS News in 2017. Well, if you doubt at all that this is still going on, uh, you need to recognize that the Third Reich is alive and well at the local Planned Parenthood office. Matter of fact, you can chart where they're at, right? You won't find them in uh, nice neighborhoods in Beverly Hills or, you know, Thousand Oaks or Aliso Viejo. You usually find these in low-income areas. There's a strategy to all of this from the very beginning that drives it, and it's based on evolutionary theory that divorces itself from the fact that all people are made in the image of God. Uh, not to mention that we can speak personally about this in our own family. As a matter of fact, my wife just wrote a chapter for this book that's about to come out that our own Dr. Goodrich at CBI is the editor of. And uh, one of the chapters in the book is about uh, when you have a pre-diagnosis of a child with a birth defect, which of course my daughter, some of you know her, Stephanie, was diagnosed at 20 weeks with spina bifida. And of course, we were told by multiple medical professionals, well, of course, you have to abort this child. We don't want this child in the world. Now, this is alive and well, as personal as it gets to our family. When this book comes out, I certainly would encourage you to read the chapter that my wife wrote on choosing life when you have a diagnosis of a baby with a birth defect. So, uh, we got rid of uh, Nazi Germany. It'd be good for us to get rid of at some point this same philosophy that's alive and well at Planned Parenthood. And why do we want to get rid of it? Because God was very clear. Man was created in the image of God. The image of God. I want you to think clearly about that. We talked about the fact that we're not talking about physical image, but we're talking about the fact that the characteristics of God are apparent in children. And you wouldn't say to a family, well, I think you got three really smart children. They're A students. You got two children that are C students. And you got a couple ugly children that, you know, they get B pluses. But let's kill the ugly ones and the ones that are C students and keep the A students. That's exactly what's going on in our country. You would never do that as a parent of children that were 5, 10, you know, 13 years old. 
Uh, but that's exactly what we are choosing to do with the philosophy that we have when God looks at every person that is created and he gives them life. And then we decide, well, you may be made in the image of God, but it's time for us to make decisions about what life is worthy of living. The Bible's very clear about this. God himself gives life, not just to Adam and Eve, but to all mankind, right? All mankind. He gives life and breath and everything. Now, he made from one man, right? From that one man, he made, right? He's the subject here of every nation of mankind, every nation of mankind, everyone, right? He gives all mankind life and breath, all mankind, even those who are in wheelchairs, even in those who have really wide noses, even those that have uh, strange physical characteristics to you. He's made all of them. He made them to live on the face of the earth. He's determined the allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling places, including whether or not they live in Compton or whether they live in Beverly Hills, whether they lived in the 1700s or whether they live in the 21st century. God has determined all of that, God has said. And by the way, when you talk about disabilities, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I look at my daughter's disability and I recognize this. God did that. I have no problem saying that because that's what the Bible says. God did what he did in your life. You don't like things about your physical life, about your mental dexterity, your ability to make good grades. You just need to understand, God does it, whether it's making you brilliant or making you just a C student, whether he makes you gorgeous or whether he makes you just a plain Jane. God has done all of that, whether he makes you an athlete that's really uh, successful on the, on the football field or whether you can't even make the chess club or the football team. God does all of those things. God is the one, and he is the father of all mankind. He is the one who has endowed every single person in this room with life, and you reflect the nature of God. God says you better not deal with people differently just because they have problems and you don't like what they have or they don't contribute to society. Leviticus 19 verse 14 says you shall not curse the deaf. You shouldn't put a stumbling block before the blind, but you got to fear God. Why? Because those are my kids. I've made these people in my image. I am the Lord. I'm in charge. You understand that right now we have a whole generation and we wonder why things are bad in our country. Well, I think it can get a lot worse. Matter of fact, if it doesn't get worse, God's going to have to apologize, as is often said, to Sodom and Gomorrah because the reality of him bringing judgment on old cities for their sin and their immorality or the Canaanites for their pagan practices of throwing their children in the fire as a sacrifice, we're doing the same thing at a rate of about 6.6 million children every eight years. That's a horrific statistic of people that will hang their ultrasound picture on a refrigerator if they want the child, and they'll head down to Planned Parenthood to get an abortion if they don't want the child. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it and every person, the world and those who dwell therein, everyone who lives in the world, God owns them. doesn't matter what they look like. doesn't matter how smart they are. doesn't matter what European country they come from, what African country they come from, what Asian country they come from. God owns them all. The Lord is God. You need to know that. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. And you don't go around killing other people's sheep. You don't do that, but you don't own yourself. You don't own your children. And when you get married and conceive a child, you don't own that fetus. Because it's not a fetus. It's a person made in the image of God. Preborn humans are humans from conception. From the point of conception, when all the material, the data is there, right? the chromosomes are in place, and we have a human being we have a human baby, right? Preborn humans, right, are human from the point of conception. They are biologically human. There's no way to deny that. Everything about them meets all the qualifications for being a biological human. They are scientifically human. 
There's nothing about them. We'll say, no, this is a mole rat. No, this is a crocodile. This is a, a goldfish. This is a scientifically human being. Just like if I started aborting baby pandas, right? I took pregnant pandas and I went in there with my instruments, my stainless steel instruments, and I carved out those pre-born pandas. I'll bet some of the liberals would get mad at me. What do you think? I think they would. I'd say, well, it's not. It's just a ball of cells. It really doesn't matter. I didn't want my panda to get inflated here with a pregnancy. It wasn't convenient right now. I didn't want to feed another panda right now at the zoo. Right? I think we would have the world with torches and pitchforks ready to kill me. And right now we are at a, a rate of about a million a year. We're killing unborn children because we just don't think they're any more than a ball of cells. Everything about them genetically adds up to humanity. Everything. Well, I know Christians that don't think that way. Well, I do too. I know some pro-faith, pro-family, pro-choice people. Right? They don't think it, these children are made in the image of God. Matter of fact, here is a uh, Catholic theologian that writes this. A fertilized ovum, it's always convenient to use medical terms as it relates to abortion. A fertilized ovum, evidently, right, based on all the scientific, biological, genetic definitions, is, it's human life. I get that, but it's not a person. It's human life, but it's not a person. Well, there's a distinction without a difference right there. I want you to think about it. That's a distinction you're making between human and person, but it really is no difference there, right? If Hans Kung, this liberal Catholic theologian, is going to tell me, hey, that preborn child that your wife is carrying, oh, it's uh, genetically, biologically, scientifically a human embryo, but it's not a person, right? Maybe this little uh, black child here might want to ask, well, then who gets to decide who a person is? Because I know genetically, scientifically, we can look medically at a embryo and say that is a human embryo with human genetic DNA components that make up humanity. I just wonder who gets to decide when it becomes this imaginary thing where we've made a distinction, but there's no difference. And all of a sudden now we say, well, it's not a person yet. Well, our cheering uh, liberal uh, female pastor is going to say, shut up, kid. I get to decide that, of course. Right? My body, my rules. The problem is it's not your body. This body within your body has a completely different set of genetic characteristics. It has its own thumbprint, fingerprints, completely independent. Matter of fact, you can be a woman, right? Obviously, if you're going to be pregnant, and have a male child inside of you. There's nothing more independent and unique than that. Oh, yeah, that child may be dependent on you. Just like when he's born, he's going to be dependent on you. Matter of fact, he's going to be dependent on you for a long time. I mean, he's going to be dependent on you in one way or another, probably for about 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 years, right? If you leave a baby without a mom as, as, a, as a one-year-old, that baby's going to die. Of course, the baby needs the mom and the umbilical cord and the system of nutrients that come through the mother. But when does the mother get to decide when this child is a person? Well, I think that's a very important question. Well, I, I know there's people in the Third Reich that got an answer. Right? We like making those decisions for you. We will tell you when you're a person and when you're not a person. As a matter of fact, they went around often saying, we don't think this person is a person. And you say, well, that's horrific. I can't believe they took living people and decided whether their life was worthy of life. Well, you don't understand that these are living people as well. Every one of these preborn children is a living person. And every single one of these, we're having people make decisions, not if they're human babies. We all say they're humans, but we'll call them fetuses or or fertilized ovum, but we're not going to say they're persons. Well, who gets to decide that? Well, whoever wants to. You can just go through the list and say, well, this one's going to go to the maternity ward. This one's going to go to Planned Parenthood. This one's going to go here and, and, and go to a prenatal check. And this one's going to go over here to the abortionist clinic. 
This is how it works in our society right now. And if you don't, because you grew up with this and you think it's normal, if you're not appalled by this, then you're not awake. Just like you look back in your history books and you say, how can those teenagers who sat there in junior high and high school in Nazi Germany not think that putting human beings in ovens and killing them at the rate of 6 million people in 11 years, how did those teenagers not just have a fit and say, what is wrong here? How did they not, how were they not outraged? How did they just go along with this and sign up to follow in the footsteps of the Third Reich and say my fewer to, to Hitler? I'm just saying you've got the same thing going on in our generation. And some of you don't even have the guts to tell some pregnant teenager at your school, hey, you should not dare think for a second about seeing that child's life torn limb for limb with some stainless steel tools of a guy who doesn't believe anybody is made in the image of God. Preborn humans are persons. They're not just humans, they're persons from conception. The Bible is full of this reality. They're humans and they're persons. God treats every single preborn child that is described in Scripture as a human being. If you've grown up in church, you know Psalm 139. God talks about forming inward parts of, of, of our bodies, being knit together. These pronouns, he says, I, right? I have been fearfully wounded. I was knit together in my mother's womb, right? You have a mother, you're just a ball of cells. No, I have a mom and I'm being knit together by God. And Zacharias was told about his son, John, prenatally. Talks about you have joy and gladness and many are going to rejoice at his birth. He'll be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, right? He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, right? Prenatally. Now that's a unique situation that he's going to be filled with God's Spirit, and, and directed by God's Spirit, even as a preborn baby. Uh, but God is not interested in the life plans of a mass of cells. He treats preborn children as humans and persons. Matter of fact, when people strive together, they have a fight. This is the Old Testament law. And someone hits a pregnant woman who's standing there, standing by, so that her child comes out. They have a premature birth. Yet there's no harm to the baby, right? The one who hit her shall surely be fine. You'll be fine for hitting a pregnant woman. That's for sure, even if the baby's okay. As the mother's husband is going to impose on him, how much do you think you should pay me and my wife for hitting my wife? There's going to be some kind of hearing. You're going to go to the elders of Israel. We're going to figure that all out. He's going to pay as the judges determine. If there's any harm, right, then you're going to pay life for life, limb for limb, bruise for bruise. It goes on, but it starts with this, life for life. If the baby's life dies, the guy who hit that woman is going to die. Why? Because this person is made in the image of God. Next time you hear, and i got to think in a group this size, someone's going to hear in your network of people that you know, you're going to hear of someone that is pregnant with a quote-unquote unplanned pregnancy, and they're going to feel unprepared, and they're going to be conflicted whether or not to have this child aborted. I'm going to tell you we have a ministry here at our church, and you need to write this down. If you write nothing else down tonight, write this down, compasshope.org. That's the first thing you ought to tell someone, is I'm here for you, and here's a website. And we want you to go to that website so we can have people at our church that are going to step in and help you. And I'm telling you, our ministry here, Compass Hope, has saved lives, literally saved lives, that would be sucked down a sink in an abortionist clinic because people like you went out there and said, hey, before you think about running off to Planned Parenthood, because you don't even have to tell your parents right now to get an abortion, right? Until you do this all under, under the radar because you think you're going to get away with it, you're never going to get away with it because you're going to be plagued with guilt for the rest of your life for murdering your unborn child. This is going to be a problem. Compass Hope is there because there is hope. and There's a chance for people 
to work through these, no matter how embarrassing, how difficult it might be. Because we are made in the image of God, and every preborn child is made in the image of God. On the other end of the spectrum, I just want to remind you too, it's not just eugenics that's the problem. There's something called euthanasia that's a problem. And we just need to remind you that no matter how elderly someone is or how terminally sick someone is, they are human and they are persons. They're human persons, every one of them. Euthanasia, you see that same first opening two letters, epsilon nu, um, or not nu, epsilon uh, upsilon. Uh, the U means good. Uh, the next three letters there, T-H-A-N, well, actually A, is the word, it comes from the Greek word thanatos. Thanatos means death. Euthanasia means a good death. This is a good time to kill someone. This is a good thing. This will be a good thing. And usually we say it's time to kill someone when they're so old or so sick, we ought to do something just to put them out of their misery. Because, you know, like a dog, right? Your dog's really sick. It's got tumors. I can't really afford it. Let's just take him and put him down. Or, you know, your horse breaks his leg. Well, I guess we're going to have to go out and have the horse put down. Well, well, Grandpa now has been in ICU for a long time, and his insurance is about to run out, so we need to put Grandpa down. This is where we live. We need to know how important old people are to God in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19, again, says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. And I'll say this to you, because I'll bet none of you do this, but when there's an old man that walks into the room, and I mean he's got gray hair, an old man, when he walks in the room, you ought to get off of your butt and you ought to stand up. You ought to pull out your hand. You ought to shake his hand. You ought to respect him. You ought to listen to him. Even if you got to move on and do something else. The Bible says you got to stand up. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. He's not treated. You don't treat him like a peer. You don't treat him just like some other person. If they're aged and they're old, the Bible says to God, that's an important life that has been around for a long time on this planet. And you ought to honor that life. When it comes to that life dying, and Paul wasn't quite so old yet, but he was going to die, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to have someone kill me just because my life is getting hard. He says, my eager expectation and hope that it will not at all be put to shame. Right? I'm not going to be ashamed, but with full courage. That's what's going to take, by the way, to die well. When your grandpa is there and he's suffering in a hospital, you need to tell him, Dad, you need courage. Grandpa, you need courage. That's what we need, and Paul has courage that now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. I'm not going to become a murderer just because I'm ill and I'm dying. I'm not going to tell you to kill me, whether by life or by death. I'm going to honor the Lord with my body. For me to live as Christ and die as gain, I know it's better to die. I get that. But I'm still not going to cash out, tap out here at the end of my life. I'm going to recognize that what I need is more courage. Why? Because there's an overarching command for all of us. You shall not murder. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just what we, we can't do. It's a Hebrew word. It's different than dying. And there's a lot of distinctions, about four different Hebrew words in the Old Testament for when someone is put to death, but we're talking about the word murder. That's the intentional ending of a life, a person made in God's image. This is not war. It's not judicial execution. We'll talk about all that later in the week. What do we do for grandpa? Well, medicine's a good thing. Not good for you to be drinking wine or people that are trying to make an important set of ju judgments in the world. Not for kings, Olumel, it says. Not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink. Shouldn't be out there throwing back the tequila lest you drink and forget what's been decreed. If you've got an important role, you should be very careful in your community to keep your mind intact and never be inebriated, right? You don't want to pervert the rights of the afflicted. If people are looking to you for common sense and smartness and intelligence, well, then you better not be inebriated, right? But give strong drink to the one who's perishing, right? That's fine. In fact, that's what morphine's for. 
That, that's what Dilaudid is for. That's what these medications are for, to give calming assurance and to take the edge off of, pain, of the pain and death because it's painful. I get that. And give wine to those who are in bitter distress. I'm all about hooking up grandpa to the morphine drip. I'm all about that. Get as much of that as you can. Get you comfortable as you can. Death is a hard chapter. You need courage and you need medication. Principles of human evolution. Well, I'm glad that we don't look at that and go, well, some of them are at the top of the heap and they have the right, their favored races and the rest are not. And I'm just saying, sometimes we start looking around at people saying these people are worthy of life, these are not. Whether it's the aged, whether it's the unborn, or whether it's the kind of racist uh, propaganda that has taken root in Planned Parenthood, which that's how it all started. They'll deny it all now. They'll do everything they can on Snoops, Snopes to say, you know, well, that's not really what happened. Look it up. Do your homework. That's what happened. That's what it was all about. Certainly the Third Reich and Germany, that was obviously what it was all about. All of this branching out of uh, natural selection and the survival of the favored races. Well, I'm glad that we're not a part of that. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, what are we saying, though, about the distinctions? Because I look at a picture like that, and I think, oh, wow, you know, it seems like uh, if that's not the case, I'm looking at babies in the nursery going, they all look really different. Uh, what's my thought about the differences between all these people? Well, first of all, we start with, with not, what's, we start with what's not different. And what's not different is the fact that they bear the image of God. They are a special connection and a special reflection and a special creation of God. And so I start there and I never lose sight of that no matter how horribly mentally challenged or impaired someone is, no matter how physically damaged they are, no matter how different than me they look, they all have the image of God. They all reflect the image of God. And they are, by the way, I don't use the word racism, at least not unless I'm quoting someone else, because I don't believe there is such a thing when it comes to human beings, because there's only one race. There's only one race of human beings. Now, I just want to show you race or kind. I want to show you that word in the Bible. There's a lot of different kinds of plants and animals, a lot of different kinds. Let's just look through this, plants and animals, right? Let the earth sprout vegetation. This is Genesis chapter one. Plants yielding seed and fruit, seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according, each according to its kind on the earth. And so it was. Right, tonight I had, uh, for dinner, I had a little, uh, well, I had something good, but then I had some, uh, I had some watermelon, I had a little bit of uh, peach, and I had uh, half of an avocado. Those are all different kinds of things, and they're very different. And an avocado is not a peach, and a peach is not a watermelon, and they're all, they're all different kinds. Get that. And lots of different kinds of animals. Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. Genesis 1 says, let the birds fly above across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea, the creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw and it was good. Birds are not fish. Fish are not uh, reptiles. Uh, reptiles are not baboons. They're all different kinds of animals, right? Many different kinds of plants and animals. But there's only one kind of human being. Only one kind. And that's why you should never use the word race or racism because we don't, I mean, you can use racism to describe the problem we're facing in society, but there's only one race. Don't say that guy's a different race, right? Look at him. He looks so different. He's a different race. That's like saying he's a different kind of human. There are no different kinds of humans. There's none. They all bear the image of God in humankind. Even that word, humankind, reminds us there might be different kinds of animals, there might be different kinds of fruit, different kinds of plants, different kinds of all kinds of different things, but there's not different kinds of people. There's only one kind of people, the human kind of people. 
And that, if nothing else, need you get that clear in your mind. We don't believe there are different races. Why? Because every human being is of the same race. We come from the same parents. We're made in the same image of God. And we're all part of one kind, right? That, that just needs to be super duper clear. Well, then what's the difference? Well, there's varieties. Varieties of things that are going on in their face, in their hair, in their skin tone. Yeah, well, where does that come from? Packets of information. Packets of information that God put together in this encyclopedia in your DNA, right? The protein, fat, water that's all wrapped up in that double helix called the DNA molecule has all the information that every human being has and just has it in different variations, right? All human beings have, unless they have some radical birth defect, doesn't mean they're not human, but they all have eyes with different kinds of, of genetic dominant recessive traits. They have different kinds of skin tones based on the melanin in their skin, right? Some have more, some have less, right? They have different shaped eyes. A lot of it just has to do with the fatty tissue that surrounds the eye sockets, the orbital sockets of their eyes, and that makes their eyes look a little different, right? But you could pop their eyeballs out. I mean, I don't recommend it, but you could say, oh, that's an eyeball just like mine, right? Maybe a brown eye and mine's maybe a green eye, but this, their eye, well, oh yeah, but how it looks in their face is different. Why? Because if something you've got there, you may have more of it than I do. You may have less of it than I do. You may have more melanin in your skin, which makes your skin darker, right? Or I might have more melanin in my skin than you do. All of us have the same information in varying degrees because we're all of the same kind, just like there are different kinds of avocado or different uh, uh, varieties of avocados, right? Some are bigger, some are small, but it's one kind of, of fruit, right? It's one kind of, 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 it is a fruit, right? One kind of fruit. The reality of humans we start making them out like one is a watermelon and one is a peach and one is an avocado. That is not, that's wrong thinking. That all comes from the folly that sprung from Darwinism and natural selection and favored races. And I would say, well, all the races are the same, but you're still thinking in those categories. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't want to think in those categories. Why? Because they're not biblical categories. Well, where did this all start then? How, how can we all look so different? I mean, how can we got babies that look like all different kinds of varieties. Uh, well, here's the reason right here. Uh, the Chet Holyfield Federal Building. It's called the Ziggurat. And I only give you that because that's what this thing looked like back in the olden days. It's called the Tower of Babel. It really had nothing to do with Laguna Niguel. But you've all seen that building, right? Right? Smile at me if you've seen that building. Okay, that, by the way, is an architectural representation of what they had in the Old Testament times way back in ancient Near Eastern times right back in, in, in Mesopotamia between the two rivers in the ancient world, Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And, and it was known as a, a part of a religious structure. Here's an artist's rendition of a ziggurat. They're called ziggurats. That's what Chet Holyfield Building's called, a ziggurat. We call it a ziggurat around here at least. Um, where they sought to, as they all assembled, to build this tower to have some kind of connection to heaven. Okay. It talks about building it up to heaven. Matter of fact, here, here's what it's after it's all said and done. Genesis chapter 11, here's what happened. The Lord dispersed them from there where they were building this ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, as it's called, over the face of all the earth. Over the He dispersed them over the face of all the... He dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Because it, at that time, they were all collected in this big metropolitan area, right? They had cities and villages, but I mean, they were all stuck here together which means they were all basically in the same environment, the same climate. I mean, it might have some little different microclimates. Some lived up in the mountains, some lived down in the deserts, but 
it was all together and they all could find a date, right? In the same basic metropolitan area. But God said, nope, you're going to go to all the corners of the earth. They, they left off the building of the city. They didn't finish it. Therefore, its name was called Babel, right? Because God, right, to Babel means I don't understand what you're saying. You're babbling. God changed their languages and he gave them different languages. They couldn't understand each other. Well, I'm going to find people that I can understand to live with. So people start grouping together in different areas, right? Because the Lord confused their languages, right? Their language of all the earth. They didn't have that one language anymore. That was zapped out of their mind and God gave them different languages in different groups. And from there, the Lord dispersed them as though we're not making the point strongly enough here over the face of all the earth. Now here's some ancient photography or different map making, ancient map making. But you can see here, we call it the Holy Land. This is a map of ancient map of Jerusalem. Uh, but you see, it really is the crossroads of Europe and Asia and Africa, right? And, and right here we see, and, and we can kind of track ancient civilization coming in this direction, at least if we were honest with some of what we're doing in, in research, and see people moving. This is what we get in the, in the table of nations in the book of Genesis, people moving into different areas based on the fact that they have language. Well, if you go to different areas like Asia and Europe and then down into Africa, certainly if you're in Africa, guess what you need more of to protect you from the radiation, the ultraviolet rays of the sun? Well, you really need to beef up your melanin. Just like when you, in the summertime, you get a little darker, in the wintertime, you get a little more pale. Well, if you move to a completely different climate that's a long way away from where everyone used to be together, you start then having children with people with these dominant traits, and they start to affect people, and they look very, very different. Acts 17, when Paul's preaching in Athens, he said he made, God did, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now he's going really quick through all of Genesis, Tower of Babel, and then saying, after Babel, there they go, all over the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, right? Doesn't mean just because you have different characteristics, different amounts of melanin, different amounts of fatty tissue around your eye sockets, different color hair, right? The, 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 the way that your hair or the shape of your nails or whatever it might be are different and you take on this characteristic that you look different, your hair's blonde, your hair's uh, black or brown. All of that, right, is all about what's coming from the places that God has placed you and the climates of those places after the flood, which took place in chapter six through nine of Genesis. So that was after the flood, the world was very different, a lot of different climates. Before the flood, a lot the same all over the planet. But the truth is, we know that God is the God of all these people. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Everybody in the corner, the Eskimos down to those that live in Ecuador, right? All from the families of the earth, God claims them all. They're mine. And therefore, you're going to meet people who look different than you. And we live in kind of a melting pot society, particularly here in Southern California, a lot of different ethnicities around, and you yawn your way through this, but you can't because we're right now in the middle of a major problem in our culture as it relates to this. And there's a lot going on in discussion in this regard. I just want to get to the basics of what the Bible teaches. Here's what the Bible teaches. Ethnic pride and ethnic prejudice are both prohibited by our creator. He is the father of everyone, the Eskimos, the Aborigines, the Pygmies, the Watusis, the, the Europeans, uh, everyone, even Canadians. He is the, he's, the, <laughs> he's the God of everyone, even the French. Barely the French, but the French too. No, I'm just kidding. And there you go, breaking the command that's on the screen. We want no ethnic pride. We want no ethnic prejudice. Right? I love the French. Actually, my family came from France at some point, married into the Mexican line somewhere five generations ago. 
some French captain in the Yucatan Peninsula, or so I'm told. It doesn't really matter. I'm a mutt. Most of you are mutts as well. But the point is, I got France in my background, and I'm ashamed to say it, but trying to make up for the snide remark about the French, I've just mentioned it to you. So there should be no ethnic pride. There should be no ethnic prejudice. Right? Both are prohibited by the Creator, which means I can't think because I'm of this origin or I have this ethnic background or my skin is this color or my hair is this color or my statue is, stature is this, I'm taller, I'm short. I can't have any pride about that. And I can't prejudge you because your skin is dark or because you come from that country or because you're part of that, you know, uh, that, that characteristic of having that kind of, of, of shape of your face or whatever it might be. I can't do that. Okay? Ethnic pride and ethnic prejudice are prohibited by the Creator, okay? And we often think, well, I know how that usually goes, right? Just like those Aryan white uh, Nazis, they were hating the Jews, right? And just like we saw Margaret Singer, and she was hating those black people in America. I know how that works. I just want to make this very clear for your generation. Ethnic pride and ethnic prejudice is prohibited in any direction, in any direction, in every direction, right? In any direction, in every direction. Like the truck I always see parked over by Home Depot. That's telling me that I should get out of his country because he was here first and he's a you know, Native American or a Hispanic or whatever he claims that he is. Well, my family's been in Southern California for five generations, so I don't know that he's been here longer than me. But nevertheless, the point is, he's going to say, I, I, got, I got claims and rights on this. I was here first, right? Every, every year at the mission, San Juan, right? They have this protest at, on Columbus Day, right? You got that going on. And of course, we got a lot more going on that we're going to talk about right now. But I want to make it very clear, in any direction, whether it's Jew against Greek or Greek against Scythian or barbarian or free or whatever it was, slave in the Bible, God shows no partiality. So he's not one who has prejudice saying, well, Eskimos are better than the Africans, right? Or, you know, really the, the, the Australians are, are, are better than the, the Chileans, right? That's not how God ever works, not how it works. He did work through the Jews to bring the Messiah, and he, he decided that in his plan, but he shows no partiality, makes that clear throughout the Bible. And he says there's no distinction. God doesn't see any distinction between the Jew and the Greek. They look very different. They have very different backgrounds, different cultures, different foods. No, the same Lord is Lord of all. And he bestows his riches on all who call on his name. And that's what we want, by the way. We want every person from every ethnic background to put their trust in God. I didn't say races because there is only one race, only one kind of person, mankind, right? Humankind. But I want all of them to call on the Lord. But before you're saved or after you're saved, there's no distinction. God sees people as people made in his image neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. When it comes to God and the image of God, male and female, it's not that God you know, is saying, well, yeah, I think females are more in touch with their spiritual side, so I, I'm closer to them. Or men, because you know, I'm, I'm, I'm male and presenting myself as in masculine terms, I, I prefer the men over the women. That's not how God thinks. You're all one. You all have the same status before God as a human being bearing his image. So you should no, show no partiality. That's how God thinks. James 2 says, my brothers show no partiality these people in, in James's day, you'd made a distinction. You've made distinctions among yourselves. You become judges with evil thoughts. You prejudged people because of what they have or what they don't have. In this case, he was concerned about people looking at the rich and the poor, making those distinctions. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your eye shape is. I don't care how tall you are, how short you are. I'm going to love you like I love myself. That's what the Bible says I should do. That's the royal law. That's God's law. If you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, if you think that you're superior because of some ethnic trait or that someone else is inferior because of their ethnic trait, or you think someone else because of their ethnic trait is superior to you, all of that, you're committing a sin. Today, that's the direction it's working. Perhaps these titles you've heard of, white fragility, 
how to be an anti-racist, right? Grading for equity, many in the educational field. Robin DiAngelo, Abram X. Kendi, those are two big names in this that have turned this all on its head. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. I know we're going long, but hang here in here with me. The church in particular has jumped on to this. The church thinks this is a good thing. They're trying to make right injustices of the past. Well, Margaret Sanger and a lot of Americans or Anglos have hated on people of color, then we need to turn that all around. And that's happening in the church. Here's a book right here on prayer. Okay, this gal right here, Sarah Bessley, Bessie, she wrote this book. This is just one. I, this is an egregious example. But here is what's going on in people's thinking today as some black people within the church are writing things like this. This is a devotional book. Dear God, help me to hate white people, or at least to want to hate them, right? That's what I like. At least I want to stop caring about them individually or, and collectively. I'm going to stop caring about their misguided racist souls to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. Okay, I, just, I want you to think through that sentence for just a second, right? That paragraph. Please help me hate white people. There's a black lady in the name of God help writing prayers to help you pray along, particularly writing it, I'm assuming, to black people, although I know a lot of people aren't. A lot of people are writing this to white people to say, hey, white people, you need to hate white people. That needs to happen. Here's some more from her book, which I just think captures a lot of what's going on in churches these days. My prayer is that you would help me, right, to hate the other white people, not just the bigoted white, but you know, the nice white people. I want to hate them. The Fox News-loving, Trump-supporting voters who don't see color, like Mike Fabares, the mutt, you know, French-Mexican guy who's saying, everybody's made in the image of God, we're all one, and all the verses I just quoted. The people that don't want to see color because color is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because we're all made in the image of God. Well, she wants to help other Christians learn to hate me. That, that's what this book is all about. Another quote from the book, Lord, if it be your will, harden my heart. Stop me from striving to see the best in people. Stop me from being hopeful that white people can do and be better, right? Let me imagine them instead as white hooded robes standing in front of burning crosses. Okay, this kind of stoking of hatred toward white people is exactly what's going on in our culture. And if you go to public school, like I sent my kids to public school, you're hearing this and you're going to be hearing it because I've read the standard protocol, which is going around in Saddleback Unified and in Capo Unified, in trying to make sure that this kind of thinking gets into your brain. And a lot of the people in school were saying, well, that's not really what it is. I've read the plan for the next whatever it is, seven years, and I spent a lot of times a big fat document to try and work through what they're trying to teach you and your younger siblings as they move through school. And this is what it's all about. You'll hear these kinds of words, the words that we need to at least understand before we leave here. And if this goes on till midnight, it's going to be worth it. You got to go to the bathroom, take a break, but let's keep going. Critical race theory, okay? You've heard this phrase before. You need to know that this is what the school districts are concerned with teaching you. This is what the culture is concerned with teaching you. This is what ESPN is interested in teaching you. You understand that. It's everywhere right now, okay? We talk about these things. We wrap it in words like civil rights and, and racism and systemic racism and equity and all these kinds of things. We need to think through what this all means real quickly, okay? Claims of CRT, of critical race theory. Here's what critical race theory teaches. And if you don't know, you need to know because someone's going to ask you. And if you're an educated Christian, you ought to know these things. Here's what CRT, critical race theory, is about. That America as a nation, as a nation, as a system, right, as an organization, as a country, is racist, okay? Even if the people are not prideful or prejudiced. 
Right? They may not be ethnically prideful. They may not be ethically prejudiced, but they're still a racist nation. Why? Well, because racism just simply is that ethnicities, I'm going to use that word, that's the right word, don't have the same stuff. Right? They don't have the same things. There's not the same number of people from whites versus people of color in the best colleges. Right? The, the, not the ethnicities are not all equal when it comes to income. Ethnicities, it seems like people of color are living in neighborhoods that, are, that have less opportunity and, and stores are worse than they are over here in good. So that means that the country is, is racist. Okay? Um, by the way, that's not a consistently applied principle. They don't say there's not the same number of ethnicities on you know, NBA teams, therefore the country's racist. They don't, they don't say that. Uh, they don't say it about gender. For instance, they'll say all the time, uh, our country is racist because we've got more black people in prison than we have white people in prison. Right? But you understand we have way, 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 way more men in prison than we do women. And if the answer to that is to try and fix that by saying what we need is to release a ton of men until we get an equal amount of women or start really, let's just start imprisoning women so we have as many women as we do men, you'd say, well, wait a minute. That's not, maybe there's a reason that there's more crime here among men than there is. But you're going to start to have to think there may be another reason than just saying because there's an inequity in the outcome, right? There must be some kind of racism, which is a pretty strong uh, accusation. Of course, it's the strongest one that can be made that's tossed around everywhere right now. So the goal then for CRT is simply we need everyone to get the same thing. Everything gets, everyone gets this equal possessions, and everyone has an equal experience in our country. That's the goal, right? That's the goal. The old goal was equality. Matter of fact, the old presidential administration used to talk a lot about equality. Equality meant everyone is treated equally. Everyone gets the same opportunities. No one is not, not allowed into Chick-fil-A because they're the wrong color. No one's not allowed into Cal State Fullerton because they're the wrong color. No one's not allowed into Harvard because they're the wrong color. That, 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 that was the old goal. Equity. I'm sorry, equality. Everyone should be treated equally. That's, part, by the way, what Martin Luther King kept teaching. I just want to treat everybody equally. I want to judge them on other things besides their skin color. Matter of fact, he said, right, you know this, the quote, I would like to judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That was the civil rights movement, which even my family was a part of in the South, to try and make sure that equality was established in, in Southern states. That's important, right? But now it's turned into, as soon as Biden got in office, it, all the talk now is all about equity. And equity means something different than equality. Equity means everyone needs to have the same experience. CRT says, because you are white, if you happen to be, and not all of you are, but if you happen to be sitting here white and I'm talking to you, and I guess because I'm not brown as the rest of my family, uh, my mom's white, everyone else in my family is brown, but I'm, I'm probably too white for Abram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, so I am considered white in their eyes because they're just looking at the exterior of my life, and they're saying, you are racist. Why am I racist? Okay? I'm racist because I'm part of a class right, that has oppressed and persecuted people of color in the past or so they think, even though you'd be hard-pressed to find in my past anybody who has oppressed uh, a black person, for instance, right? That's just I, not the case. I guess you could trace my mom's side of the family maybe and find someone. But here's the thing. They're going to say, that's a foregone conclusion. We're going to decide that already, that you are an oppressor simply because you're white, because you're part of an oppressing class, right? And they'll say this, as I've had black people say to me in positions of power, hey, white guy, you have had more advantages than I have. And my response to that, this was in a very important meeting, I said, listen, you don't know anything about my advantages. And I don't know anything about your advantages. I don't. We're going to have to talk about what advantages you have or haven't had. 
You cannot do that. Like, I can't prejudge you. You can't prejudge me. You have no idea, based on the color of my skin, what my life has been like. You'd have to ask me a lot of questions before we get to that conclusion. All people of color, right? Blacks and Hispanics in particular, not Asians. If you're Asian here, I'm really sorry. You don't count when it comes to being in the oppressed class, right? Or Jewish people either, right? Even though they were oppressed and killed at 6 million people in 11 years from 1933 to 1945, they still are not in America considered part of the oppressive uh, oppressed class. They're the oppressor class. And so are Asians now. Sorry, you thought you could slip in because you're, you're, you were ethnically different than white people. Not, not the fact, right? They are always people of color, which usually means Hispanics and blacks, but blacks in particular are always oppressed and always persecuted. Okay, claims of CRT, a few more. All white people are guilty. You are guilty. You have an inherent problem. And when this comes to the church, it is that you have a sin, a residual sin that affects you being part of a class of people. And that class of people, if you're white enough, they say you're a white class of people and therefore you carry guilt. You carry guilt because as someone has said to me, many people say, you have power and that power you've got because of your skin color. That's the assumption. So if you have power in, in society, which they think is because more people are in nice colleges right? Because they're lighter skinned and more people are in prison because they have darker skin. Well, then they're saying, well, of course, if you have lighter skin, then you get to go to better colleges and avoid prison. So you got more power and more advantage. And really what CRT wants is for you to give up that power. Matter of fact, you need to give it up. It's funny how many people who say this, who happen to be white, who are echoing this sentiment throughout our society, don't seem to give up their power. And yet that's what they're telling you to do. You need to give up whatever power you have. You have a position of power, you're board of chairman of the board or a manager at your work, you need to give that position up. And of course, no one wants to do that willingly. So we're going to work in the structure of society to make sure that you get to give that up. We're going to make you give that up. That's the goal of critical race theory. People of color cannot be guilty. You cannot be guilty. You cannot be racist. Why? Because you're part of a victim class. You've been oppressed in historical past. If you're a black person, for instance, you were part of, 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 of your, your, your ancestors, even if you came from another part of the world that wasn't enslaved. But we know a lot of Africans were enslaved. They were kidnapped. They were enslaved in America. So you're a victim and you can never be guilty. You can never be racist. Why? Because you don't have the power, right? You can't be racist because you don't have the advantage because you're not white. So that's why... Uh, our, the gal who wrote the book on prayer to help you pray to hate white people, if you say, well, that sounds pretty racist, right? You're telling me just because of the color of my skin, I need to hate you because you're white. Even if you're a nice white, white person, you, you listen to the wrong news channel, so I get to hate. That can't be racist. Why? Because she's black. And if she's black, she's a part of an oppressed class. If she's part of an oppressed class, right? You can't accuse me of racism because I don't really have the power, even though you got a book deal with a better publisher than I did. I don't, that's a different story, I suppose. So, Bottom line is being white is bad, right? And you should be hated. Matter of fact, you should learn to hate yourself. You should actually try to be less white. That is what they actually say. You need to try to get rid of your whiteness. And your whiteness doesn't mean you start going to the tanning beds more often, right? It means you need to stop acting like a white person. So what does that mean? This is what CRT is all about. And people who are for CRT, I just challenge you to... Let's do the research together. This is what is being said, what is being taught. Best-selling books are saying this, okay? Here's what you do to be less white. To be less white, here's what, you need to be less assertive, less certain about stuff, less powerful, less defensive, less ignorant. Uh, you need to agree with all claims of oppression. If anyone says, as I just watched a gal who said she got pulled over and harassed because she was black, she gave this big 
tirade about how the cop harassed her and she called the cop names and she said all this stuff. Well, then the badge cam came out. They played the complete stop from the badge cam and they were able to A-B this on the video. Just, just a cl classic example of a gal who has created all this in her mind. She went on Facebook and put it all out to all of her friends and said, I'm being harassed because I'm black, okay? They played the whole badge cam. This cop was totally professional. She was doing 70 miles an hour in a 55 mile hour zone, gave her a ticket, she called him names. He said nothing disrespectful. She gets on Facebook. Everyone has to believe her. And if I'm a white person or a black person, I'm supposed to say, clearly you were oppressed. Even though now all the facts say you weren't oppressed. She still gets away with that. No one takes down her Facebook post because she's of an oppressed class. I've got to believe every claim of oppression, whether it's real or not, whether it's true or not. If you want to be less white, you've got to stop expecting results for achievement. You did well on the SATs, you want to get into a good school. That should not be something you should expect because if you're the wrong color, you should not expect that because your ancestors got advantage and now you should not get advantage based on your hard work or your achievements. You need to accept the fact that you're guilty because of past sins in America, like slavery, like ethnic slavery, man uh, napping, kidnapping, and bringing people over here. They were the different skin color. You have to be the skin color of the slave owners if you're white, and they're the skin color of the slaves, therefore, you are guilty. You need to accept that guilt. And you need to learn to hate that about yourself. Okay? You need to learn to hate the whiteness, and you need to be prejudiced against it. There's no neutral ground, they say. For you to say, I'm not racist, man. I'm not racist. I treat everybody the same. I, I don't see color. Right? Remember that, that's, by the way, they're going to call you racist for saying that. But if you say that, they'll say no middle ground. The only, Abram X. Kennedy's whole premise of his book Number one, best times or New York Times bestseller was that you need to be anti-racist. That's the whole point. You need to now hate whiteness, white culture. You need to hate people that are white and assertive or certain or powerful or defensive or they don't know as much as you do. All that you need to learn to hate it. To quote Kendi, he says, the only remedy against racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. We need to reverse this all. It's payback time. It's retribution time. How long have I been going? Hours now? When did I start? About an hour ago? Hour and a half ago? Um, there's more I want to say, but I'll, I, you know what? I'm going to put a pin in it there because this is too important and I want to finish this tomorrow. Um, but can I get to, let me get to the close. Let me get to the close. You want me to keep going? Um, Okay, all right, then, then, and this, this may be too much, but let's, let's go here real quick, okay? And if you get nothing else, get the title of the slide. You don't need to get all the details of the slide, okay? You want to know where this came from. Here's where it came from. A man named Karl Marx. You know Karl Marx? Father of modern communism, okay? German philosopher. These are just quick bullet points, but just the headings. All you, need. you need to know where did this come from? It came from here. This is where it started. Well, didn't it start with slavery? No, that's not where it started. Father of communism, he said this, rich people are bad because they're oppressors. They have the money, they're the managers, they get time off when they want, they don't have to ask someone for vacation, they are in charge, right? Everyone should be on the same plane economically. Everyone should make the same amount of money. Money of the rich people should be taken away from the rich people and the government should own everything that rich people have and the government then should control all the production of wealth, all the companies, right? And they should redistribute that to the poor people so that everyone makes the same amount of money. That's Marxism in a nutshell, okay? 
Then there was something that is called the Frankfurt School, which in the early part of the 20th century was a group of scholars and professors that got together in Frankfurt, Germany, and they said, okay, Marx had this great idea about economic oppressors and oppressed. And what we need to do is we need to see that. We need to be critical. This is what's now called critical theory. We need to be critical about every social institution, every cultural institution, art and, 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 and sports and everything. We need to look at everything and say, we need to be critical to find where the oppressors and the oppressed are. Researchers in Germany, they applied Marxist oppressor and pressed to stuff beyond economics. They were critical of all social structures. They looked at oppressor and oppressed, right? Oppression and oppressors, right? They sought then to achieve what they saw as total societal, societal equity, right? We want total societal equity. Everyone gets the same in society, right? Everyone gets the medal. Everyone gets the badge. Everyone gets a trophy. Everyone gets, not just money. It's everything else. Then there was something called liberation theology. Liberation theology was a movement in, in the 20th century. Actually, I think I put a few Catholics in particular in South America, late 1900s, mid to late 1900s. They said the church now, this is where it all merges together. And I'm concerned about the church because the world says a lot of crazy things. But if you're at a church or a Christian school, in Christian school in particular, that's probably the most dangerous place to get these concepts because they come into people's Christian thinking and they will absolutely destroy biblical thinking in your mind if you're not careful. Christian mission, the, the, the point of the church should be to stop poverty, right? Even though Jesus said, poor we always have with you, we need to make sure that that's not true. We need to make sure that everyone has the same amount of money. And that's the church's mission. That's called liberation. We're liberating people from poverty. We're liberating people from any kind of social injustice, which is going to include not only Marxism economics, but the Frankfurt School, critical theory, social institutions. Everyone should have all that fixed. And you know what? We're going to quote Bible verses, and we're going to say that's how it ought to be, right? Like in Acts, when they all, if, if there was a need, Barnabas took his real estate, he sold it, he gave it to people who had need. That needs to happen. That's the whole point of the church is to get people to do that, is to achieve social equity. That's the point. Liberation theology in the mid to middle, late, three quarters of the way through the 20th century, 1900s, uh, that became super popular, particularly in South America, where you had a big divergence of the super rich and the poor. Then there was an element on top of it. This is James Cone, by the way, called black liberation theology. This was now put from just economics and social structure to it needs to now be focused on blacks, black power, right? What were some of the points I put? It's a focus on injustices that black Americans, in particular, James Cone was about black Americans. Black Americans need to uh, be freed from the liberation, from the uh, injustice. They need to be liberated, okay? This was 1970s. He died not too long ago. The mission of the church now is not just to try and help the poor so that everybody has enough money in their pocket. Really, South American liberation theology was about, let's make sure everyone has the same amount of money and the same everything, right? Whether you, you know, whatever. All the details of all the social structures. Well, black liberation theology, said, well, now let's think about Christianity. Christianity is way too white, right? It's all about the kinds of domination of white culture, white thinking, we have to make up for past black oppression, like slavery, black slavery, and we need to fix all the economic and social inequities, and we need to magnify and put at the top what's been at the tail, and that is blacks. Blacks have been at the bottom now. Blacks need to be at the top. Blacks need to be empowered. And it's not just equity. Matter of fact, if you read a lot of James Cone, there's a lot of this uh, move to a completely play. I mean, you saw things grow out of this, like the, the Black Panthers, um, the... Um, you know, uh, Mark, uh, Malcolm X, 
um, the, uh, even the nation of Islam, where it became, the blacks were now to be empowered. They are to be at the top, right? And whites have messed this up for a long time, so whites need to be at the bottom. One more contributing factor to all this. We call it postmodernity. Postmodernism is a philosophical belief. Postmodernism, which is in the late 1800s, actually post 80s, 90s, uh, there are no central organizing truths. The seeds of this were back in the 60s, but it came into full force, I guess, late 60s, 70s. There's no organizing truths. In other words, there's no undergirding things that we can say are true, always true, all the time. This is where we got a lot of people saying things like in all your pop music out there, they talk about my truth, right? Tell my truth, speak my truth. Everyone has their own truth. No longer is it truth that corresponds with facts, right? It's truth that you feel. It's feelings that you feel. And because someone has a feeling, even if it's a wrong feeling or based on foolishness, you can't judge them for that, right? There's no absolute right or wrong, right? You, everyone's right in their own way. And it's like choosing an ice cream flavor. If you like that ice cream flavor, well, then that's, your, that's the best, right? If chocolate's the best, chocolate's the best. Right? That's true for you, not for me, because I like strawberry. But see, that's how they think. I don't like strawberry, by the way. I like chocolate. But the idea is everyone's right, whether there's a God or no God, whether we should have premarital sex or not have premarital sex, whether homosexuality is okay or it's not okay. There's no right or wrong. Right? It used to be that way. Postmodernism said you can believe anything, and it's fine. You're right, I'm right, let's not argue, let's just all get along. You've seen those coexist stickers with all those symbols of religions? Let's just all get along, it's fine, okay? But here's the thing, all of that's changing in your generation. Everything now is different. What you're being taught and what you're seeing on all the cool channels, the Instagrams and all that, is no longer can you believe everything and it's fine because your truth is your truth and my truth, my truth. Completely different now. Now it's we've derived what we think is right. And you got to do what I say, and you got to do it when I say it. Do what I say when I say it. As a matter of fact, look at what went on even during COVID here, right? The whole BLM movement, the Black Lives Matter movement was all about the fact that you could not be, as Abram X. Kennedy said, you cannot be just non, like, I'm not committed, it doesn't matter. You can't say, I treat everyone the same, and so does everyone in my family, everyone in my church. You have, you have to now go and fight the system whenever someone says, I think the system is wrong, right? And therefore, if I think, Black people are being shot by white cops, right? And that's a, an epidemic. We can't even go outside of our house where, as, as Michelle Obama recently said, right? I'm, just, I'm afraid my daughter's just going to be driving while black and just be pulled over and shot by a cop, right? If you challenge that, right? If you say, well, let's look at the facts, right? Are black people being hunted down by white cops that just want to kill black people? If that's wrong, and I say, well, here are the facts, that's not even statistically true, right? Now, all of a sudden, postmodernism said, I'm entitled to my own truth. And that's true. That's what postmodernism said. Well, all the things that came from Marxism, all the things that came from liberation theology, black liberation theology, and postmodernism, it all now has forged together. It's like Plato before, and now it's hardened. It's like been put in the kiln in the furnace, and now you, it's, it's, now it's rigid. You can't not... Now, if I don't put a black square on my Instagram, right? I never go on Instagram anymore, but if I were... It's like, I'm, now I'm... Silence is violence, right? I am now perpetuating evil. If I don't do what you say when you say it, and if I don't do it when you say it, then there's a problem. You can't say things like all lives matter. No, you can't say that. Right now we're saying black lives matter, which means they have been historically oppressed or they're being hunted down by, by white cops. And therefore, right, you have to now fight with me against it. You cannot have a different opinion than me. How about homosexuality? 
right? I can't say, no, I don't believe that. It used to be in post-modernity, classic post-modernity. You could say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's good for you, good for me. It's like when they passed Prop 8, which you probably don't even remember, you were young, but when they said, hey, we're going to allow this, uh, this homosexual marriage, and you know what, it really won't bother you, because if you don't believe in that, that's fine. Just let us do it, and it's fine. Now it's like you cannot say you don't believe in that. This is the hardening of post-modernity. It's when they will say to you, you got to do what we say, and you got to do it now, and you got to do what we say. If it's changing your Instagram picture, you got to do it, because if you don't do it, then you're bad, whereas before, it wasn't that way. And when it comes to race, what they call race, what I call how much melanin you have in your skin, which is such a minute, microscopic difference between individuals, they're going to say, you'd better accept the guilt of your past, because maybe someone four, five, six, seven generations ago was doing something bad against a different ethnic group. Well, you've got to accept that. You've got to learn to hate your whiteness. You have to change your values. All that has to change. And you better do it because we're telling you to do it. Listen, Bible has a whole different approach to all this. The Bible says good and pleasant when we dwell together in unity. Not when I pray, oh Lord, help me to hate white people. Help me to hate Fox News watching white people. Help me please to not be softened to their, to their lives and, and, and treat them kindly. Let me see them in their white hoods and cross burning. Not that any of my friends ever did that, but I want to see them that way. That kind of divisiveness, which is what critical race theory is all about and social justice within the church is all about, it has to end. And it has to end with you guys. If you don't end this thing, my generations, unfortunately, they, they, they're buying it hook, line. They're lazy and they're ridiculously dumb when it comes to this topic. I need your generation to say, we're not going to take it anymore. Because the reality is that we are Christians. And as Christians, number one, we see all people, not as at the top of some evolutionary chain, right? But everyone created by God, every generation. And our job is to dwell together in unity. As a matter of fact, when it comes to people's sins in the past, whether you're Hispanic, whether you're uh, Australian, whether you're Canadian, French, whether you're black, white, I don't care what color you are, the Bible says this, there was a saying in Israel that said, when the fathers eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. They grind their teeth because, oh, they're sour. Everyone, though, he says, I'm not going to say that anymore in Israel. I don't want anyone to say that. Everyone shall die for his own iniquities, for his own sins. Each man is going to eat sour grapes, and his teeth are going to be set on edge. In other words, if I burned a cross and I wore a Ku Klux Klan outfit and I said blacks are terrible because how much melanin they have in their skin, then guess what? You should say, you're breaking the royal law of God. You're not loving people as yourself and you are in sin. You need to repent. You should confront me for that. That iniquity and that sin should be confronted. Guess what? I've never done that. I don't do that. I don't think that. I never thought that. But the culture says, Mike Fabarge, you need to hate the fact that your skin color is not dark enough. You need to hate the culture that you're a part of. And you need to do what's called reparations, not only monetarily, which is coming next, right? And if you don't ward this off as a generation, you're going to be paying people because of the color of their skin. But the Bible says we do not do reparations and pay people back for sins of the past. That's not how it works. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. That ought to be what we're all about. We don't care what color you are. We don't care what skin color you have. We don't care what your hair looks like. We don't care your body shape. There is one group of people, one body, one spirit. Just as you're called to one hope, it belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he doesn't care how much melanin you have in your skin or what your hair looks like or what your eye shape is. That's our goal. The focus of scripture is unity. The focus of the modern social justice movement in the church is how much can we hate each other because of something our your ancestors did.
Well, they were, you know, just their great-great-grandfather may have been abused. Here, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the rich. Underline the word rich here. Is that what it says? You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You should do no injustice in the court. It doesn't matter if you feel sorry for someone or, look, they had some disadvantages, and I understand they're poor, so I'm going to give them a pass because they had some, some bad childhood. Show no partiality. Do not be partial to the poor. Don't be partial to the great. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. I'm going to judge you. Right In this case, King had it right. I'm going to judge you based on your character. I'm going to based on how you act, based on the decisions that you make. And you know what? If someone lives in Beverly Hills, I'm going to recognize this. God's grace is dispensed in different ways. He rewards and blesses people in different ways. Hey, grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Everything we have dispensed by God, and you know, you may have more than I do. You may be more smarter than I am. You may be more beautiful than I am, more athletic. Oh, great, fantastic. I should praise God for the gifts that are dispensed inequally in the world. Matter of fact, I should be grateful when I get to have something nice. I go on a nice vacation and someone has to work through the summer. Oh, you know what? I, I, I wish I could take everyone with me, but this is the blessing of God and I'm going to enjoy it. Paul had some gifts and he said, I wish that you're all as I am, right? I had an apostle, he had a full-time ministry, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. Everyone's got different gifts, different advantages, different stuff going on, right? My daughter is, is paralyzed from the other. She's never going to be running track, right? Well, she's got some gifts and I guarantee you she's got some gifts you don't have. And you know what? You got gifts that she doesn't have. And that's just the way it works. And we give thanks for them all. And we realize this. When we get to the kingdom, all of us are going to have a lot more than we have now. And no one's going to be paralyzed. No one's going to be, you know, with chronic disease or having their problems or their allergies or their ADHD. No, it's not going to happen. So right now we're grateful for whatever we have that's a gift of God. You see a difference between people, right? For anyone sees any difference in you, well, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? In other words, if you have something going for you, like a great background. If you're the Prince of Wales, you were born in a palace, right? How should you think about that? Pridefully? No. You got something that was a gift of God. It was distributed by God's grace. But be thankful for it, but don't act like you, 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 you didn't receive it from God. Don't boast about it. And by the way, if you were burning crosses and wearing white hoods before you became a Christian, which I'm assuming no one in this room has, you can say, you know, all of us as non-Christians, before we become Christians, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Who knows what you might have been doing? Who knows what your grandparents were doing? I don't know. But your life, your life, because it matters about you do. Passing our days might have been in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. Even the gal that wrote a book as a Christian devotional and is trying to hate me because my skin is not dark enough, even though she is living that life, if she becomes a, a real Christian, which is hard to think there's any way, according to 1 John, chapter three, that she can be saved. But let's just say she becomes a Christian, right? Even though she spent her days writing hate literature against me, right? When the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, here's the good thing. He saves her, saves me, not because of the works we've done, because we've all done bad stuff in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the spirit. Hey, don't be deceived. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, people that practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, all are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, right? But he says, such were some of you, right? Even if you were a slave owner, right? You were a, you were a kidnapper and you were sex trafficking young teenagers from Cambodia, right? You become a Christian. Here's what the Bible would say. That's who you were. You've repented. You've done all you can to make that right. 
but it's in your past. You were set apart. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. We can be forgiven, and that's the problem with CRT. They don't believe that you ever can be forgiven. You're going to be guilty because of the color of your skin for the rest of your life, and all that's going to blow that apart is you sitting here tonight saying, every one of us are made in the image of God, no matter what we look like, where we came from. We're a special creation of God. There's no reversing that. That changes everything. Let's pray. God, help us think through these things in a culture we desperately need to think rightly and biblically. God, help us. We need it. My generation has messed this up badly. And I pray that this generation would rise up, think biblically, do what's right, demand that we think biblically and focus on unity and harmony, the fact that we are all your children, particularly redeemed people. Not only are you the father of all mankind, but you're the father, the redemptive father of us Christians, and there should never be any prideful, ethnic pride or any disdainful, ethnic prejudice. We don't care about any of that. God, I'm so grateful for our church because I don't see it here. I pray it would never be here and that we would never buy into the lie that we've got to admit something about ourselves that's not true just because someone's demanding it because they feel it. They feel their way into some kind of wrong. They want us to hate ourselves or hate the people of our ethnic background because of something they're feeling. God, the statistics in our world certainly need to be addressed. More men in prison than women. A lot of poverty, a lot of uh, unwed mothers in uh, black communities. God, I just know those things need to change. They need to change based on the problems there. We need to help them understand responsibility and godliness and self-control. But it has nothing to do with the color of their skin. Help us, God, please, to think rightly that we might not fall into the trap that Satan has laid for this generation. God, help us think biblically, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.